This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. good to be here with you today. I'm going to start by telling you about my husband, Jim, who I think is a real sweetheart. We've been married only about four and a half years now. He loves me, and he seems to cheerfully choose every opportunity to let me know. Early in our marriage, he asked me once on a Thursday evening what time I wanted my latte the next morning. I told him I didn't want him to bring me a latte. He asked me why. And I wouldn't tell him. I just repeated that I didn't want him to bring me a latte the next day. That was it. He asked me if I didn't want the beverage or if I was just not letting him bring me one. We have a commitment to each other to be candid even when it's not easy. So because of this commitment to not be deceptive to him, I told him that I knew Friday was an early morning for us. And we had had a couple of late nights, and if he was to bring me a latte, then he would have to get up even earlier, and I wasn't willing to have him do that. Now, that sounds really thoughtful and considerate of me, doesn't it? But if I'm honest with you, or actually rather honest with myself, there's more to that story. At another time in my life, I was told that I was high maintenance. And trust me, that was not intended as a compliment. That sort of comment from someone you love, it actually hurt a lot, and it stuck with me. I felt like that person was telling me that I was needy and demanding. So, in general, I had spent a lot of energy in life since that time, making sure that I didn't seem high maintenance. Refusing a latte was one way that I felt like I could feel like I was lower maintenance. The pejorative comments from another person years ago was now in danger of creeping into my incredibly loving relationship with my husband. Or at least it was going to impact the relationship unless I let myself at least explore the discomfort that was beyond my initial gut response, refusing his kindness. I was pushing my husband, my loving husband, away just a little bit when I pushed away my own story of pain. So it's tempting just to leave it there. It was only a morning latte. Refusing it doesn't break the relationship. And my process could have stopped there. I could have let the old narrative make the decision for me. However, my husband's late wife, she was a therapist as well, and she had trained him. And so he pressed me for details because that's the sort of person that he's become. The backstory became overt. Jim gave me the gift of figuring out what I wanted to do with that story. And once his inquiry brought my fears out into the open, I had the ability to decide what my own story was. I reflected on it, mulled it over, and explored the significance of it. So now I had perspective gained over time. And Jim's perspective, how he saw me and how he experienced me, was really helpful too. He could tell me. I could choose to dig deep, draw on my courage and now decide that impact of that memory, I could could decide that impact on me rather than it just dictating the impact. I could love myself through an inner conversation with a part of me that was fearful of being high maintenance, which in code really meant less lovable or maybe even unlovable. 
I had been managing my world in a way that pushed others away so that I could appear more lovable. When I was asked to speak this week, I was asked to focus on the topic of intimacy. We are all created to be in close relationship with others. Without deep and meaningful connection, there is suffering, always. God wired us to be intimate with others. And I use the intimate, the word intimate, I use that as a term very broadly here. Often intimacy is used as a code for sex. But for me, intimate is whenever you have hearts that are deeply communing with each other, that are opening up to each other in meaningful ways. So I'm going to talk today about an aspect of intimacy that we don't talk about as often, even though it is actually the building block for every other kind of intimacy. The most important relationship of intimacy is the one that you will have with yourself. Knowing yourself, being compassionate and caring to get to know the parts of you that might be harder to get to know. In my years of therapy, I've become convinced that a clear and compassionate understanding of oneself is the foundation of all other effective relationships. I know a lot of Christian theology is about service for others, focus on helping others, loving others, community on the other. And I get that. And actually, I'm all about that too. But I think God actually assumes that this happens out of a deep awareness and understanding of who we ourselves are. Donald Miller, he writes this book, Scary Close, which I love, and he says, I don't know why it is exactly, but the people with the healthiest self-esteem are also the greatest at intimacy. I'm not talking about arrogant people. I'm talking about people who know they are both good and bad, and yet at the deepest level realize they are really for people. It's a beautiful moment when someone wakes up to this reality when they realized that God created them so that other people could enjoy them, not just endure them. So today I wanna to talk about intimacy with self, with knowing all of who you are and making peace with the good and the bad and the ugly, being Christ-like towards yourself, compassionate and loving as God has asked of us. There's a really tough thing that Jesus said in his ministry, and I want you to listen to a few verses from Mark 12, starting at verse 28. One of the scribes came near and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing them, he answered them well. Seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. So Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. I am no English major, but grammatically then, I think it's fair to look at the inverse of that, which would then also be true. We are to love ourselves as we love our neighbor. And for many of us, that's a huge ask. What does it look like to love yourself well in a way that furthers the cause of Christ in a style that has you grow as a person and more and more into the likeness of Jesus? So let me ask you a question, and I want you to think about it for a minute and give yourself an honest answer. If you talked to your friends the way you talk to yourself, how would they respond?
I know that if I talked to my friends the way I talked to myself, I probably wouldn't have any friends. Sometimes my husband Jim can hear me muttering to myself when I do something dumb like burn a pan of cookies or I miss an appointment or something. And he'll, be, he'll overhear me saying, how stupid am I, and what was I thinking, and how dumb am I? And he will say, please don't talk to yourself like that when you make a mistake. Because I make mistakes, and I don't want you to talk to me like that when I make a mistake. So don't do it to yourself. But the truth is, I would never talk to him like that. I only talk to myself like that. It's only to me. And perhaps that's the same as true for you. Jesus invites us to love our enemies, show compassion to the marginalized, and make room for everyone at the table, even those that are hard to love, maybe even especially those that are hard to love. And if we are called to love ourselves with the same fierceness that he commands us to love others, well, that sets the bar really high. To learn to love oneself truly and with the spirit of Christ is really significant, and I know it's gonna take a lifetime for me to work at getting anything close to doing this well. So I'd like to go over with you the three skills of loving yourself by practicing self-compassion. And this is taken from Krista Neff's work, a researcher out of the University of Texas at Austin. If you wanna go away and look at this later, it's selfcompassion.org. So I'm gonna go over the three components, and this might be coming really handy given that the stress of the semester is high now, you have lots of deadlines and lots of pressures, and I'm gonna to talk to you about how you can be compassionate to yourself even in the midst of the struggle. So the first is this, self-kindness. Self-kindness is talking to yourself like you would talk to someone you love. That sounds easy, and yet, it's something that I've been working on for years and something I've struggled with. And even as I was preparing this talk and it wasn't flowing as well as I would like to, would have liked it to, I won't even repeat some of the things that I said to myself as I was preparing for this morning. Some of you might know my son, Carter Bergen. He graduated from Trinity here just in the spring. He played volleyball. He loves this place. And he's more than a little jealous that I'm here and he is not. I think he would have loved to carry my suitcases for me, anything to be an assistant for me today, but there was no job description for that, so he's at home. But at his birthday party one year, when he was about six or seven, he and the other kids were kind of vibrating around the table, and kids at that age, I don't know if you remember, they don't even eat their hot dogs, right, like this, they just sort of hum and laugh and giggle to each other um, in a very excited sort of way. And I had poured each of them swamp. And do you guys have swamp water when you were kids, um, other than in Manitoba? Kids love, in Manitoba, they love swamp, which is when you mix the Coke and the root beer and the Orange Crush and the 7-Up all in one jug and you pour it out. They think it's so cool. So they all had their cup of swamp, and the kid that was beside my son Carter, he, they were on the other side of the table. He sort of was joking and gesturing, and he knocked over his cup. I had a towel over my shoulder because at, when kids' birthday parties, like when they're seven or eight, it's not like if there's a spill, but it's like when there's a spill, right? So I was ready, and so this liquid started pooling over the table, and I reached with my towel across to sort of start sopping up so it wouldn't go everywhere. And to my horror, this little kid who had tipped the cup over, he saw the towel coming towards him, and he jumped back. There's this moment where he thought that I was going after him with the towel broke my heart. That was never at all my intention. It wasn't even annoyed. I was waiting for this to happen. 
And in a moment, you know, I've made up, messed up a lot as a parent. Um, I've made so many mistakes, but there's this one moment, this moment where I knew I had done something right, where my son Carter turns to him and he says, don't worry about it. Everybody makes mistakes. It's okay. And I'm like, Carter knows, even as a little kid, that that's what we say when we mess up. But my question is, is do you use the same words to yourself when you mess up? Kristen Neff says, compassion is not only relevant to those who are blameless victims, but also to those whose struggles or suffering stems from failures, personal weakness, or bad decisions. Like, you know, the kind that you and I make every day. Sometimes when I goof, I don't have the words to speak kindly to myself. I know my reflex. I'm going to be hypercritical and mean. I get nasty. These principles of self-compassion have taught me to think about Mary. And Mary is my friend who I've met for coffee every Thursday morning for about 15 years now. And I think about what would Mary say to me if I told her about this? And then I can use her words. And we've had enough of these conversations that I know she wouldn't say to me, oh, don't worry, Carolyn, it's okay that you were really mean, it doesn't really matter. She's not like that. But she also would be kind and generous and loving to me. So she might say something like, yikes, that sounds like you're feeling really badly for how you lost it with your son. He was actually really hard on you, wasn't he? It's pretty hard not to lose it when someone talks to you like that. And then she would also challenge me to figure out who I am, remind me of who I am, and figure out how to follow up a conversation with him that would allow me to take ownership for my role in that conversation. So that self-kindness is a really important part of self-compassion. The second is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the second component of self-compassion. Imagine yourself going to the doctor with a bellyache, and you say to the doctor, Doc, my stomach really hurts, can you help me? You gotta do something. And if the doctor says, here's some morphine, that'll make you feel better. Well, he might be right in that the pain will go away, but that's actually like terrible medicine, right? What if the pain is from appendicitis and you need to not go away, you need to be there and have surgery to remove it? Or what if it's some sort of malignancy and you need to go to an oncologist and you need to have surgery and chemotherapy and radiation and all that stuff? Or what if it's just constipation or gas? Right, like morphine isn't actually going to address it. You're going to need some sort of different kind of treatment. A good doctor will look at what is causing the pain to take good care of you. It's not like pain is pain is pain. It's nuanced and understanding what is going on inside of you and having a caring doctor that will take the time to figure that out and give you the right treatment, that's, that's a sign of good medicine. That's important. And our emotions work the same way. Taking the time to do due diligence with your emotions will make you a better friend, student, daughter, athlete, a brother. It's feeling not just the pain of the surface emotion, but being willing to be curious to go underneath and deeper to see what's there. Let me show you a picture of something that we use in our anger management program at my, um, at my practice. It's called the anger iceberg. We use it because so often anger is a secondary emotion to a primary emotion. We get angry as a result of the primary emotion. So last week, I got really angry at my 16-year-old because we didn't know where he was, and when he texted at midnight to ask us if he could stay longer, the answer was absolutely not. We felt and we sounded angry, but really, we'd been scared for hours. When someone cuts you off in traffic, you might have been scared that you almost had an accident. Maybe you felt disrespected. 
Anger is a relatively easy, easy emotion to feel. It has power. It feels like it puts us in control. It offloads blame onto someone else. It pushes those powerful feelings away so that we don't have to deal with them. But if you just feel the anger and don't get curious about what's underneath, you miss out figuring out what's really going on and you miss out on taking care of whatever that underlying feeling was. So um, it's really important to look at what it is. For many of us, we can very easily and quickly feel the feelings of anger and happiness. I want you to think about, it's really easy to feel feelings at one end of the emotion spectrum or the other, right? Really pissed or really sad or really happy. But I want you for a minute to think of all the emotions that you have felt in the last week besides anger and, and happiness. Just for, I'll give you a few seconds, think about what else you have felt. The research says that most of you maybe could have come up with four or five. But some research has been done, and we are realizing now that it takes an awareness of about 28 different emotions that a person needs to be able to recognize inside of them and to be able to feel and acknowledge in order to have some competent level of emotional literacy. Emotional literacy is important to be able to effectively engage with others, to be able to relate um, deeply and intimately with others. One important characteristic of empathy is to identify in the other person what they're feeling and to feel that feeling within yourself so that you can deeply connect with them. But if you don't have emotional literacy, then you won't be able to recognize some of the subtle nuanced feelings that other people are feeling. And so that emotional literacy is really important. Would you recognize these in your body? Would you be able to talk about these feelings in a conversation with another? Would you even be able to talk about these words in a conversation just inside of yourself? The other thing about mindfulness and self-compassion is the ability to be aware that you are not your feelings, that you have feelings and you need to learn to understand and figure out what to do with them, but you don't, you're not fused and one with your feelings. You don't have to overattach and get swamped with what's going on in your internal world. And so mindfulness will say, for example, I'm still upset about the grade I got earlier today, but I need to be really aware that I'm still sensitive and I'm a little bit edgy and I need to make sure that I don't take it out on my roommate later when we get back to my room. Or I am so angry at being dumped and I feel so betrayed, but I also have a paper that's due in just a few days and even though this hurts like crazy and I can't really think of anything else, let me figure out how to put it on the shelf just for a few hours so that I can get a good start on this paper and then I'll come back and I'll pay some more attention to it. And so there's this way where you can move from feeling to feeling and from out of your feelings into what needs to get done. And finally, there's a third component of self-compassion and that's universality. And that is, we are all in this together. This helps make sure that compassion, self-compassion doesn't turn into a pity party. No one likes a pity party to watch, right? Universality says that we acknowledge that we all live in an imperfect world that has pain. No one gets a pass. So when something bad happens, we can say, bad things happen to everyone. This is hard, but it doesn't mean that I'm punished or uniquely worse than other people. And so often we, when we have something hard happen to us, we're like, why is God picking on me? What have I done wrong? Why do I, what have I done that I deserve this? Or what a loser I am that I'm struggling with this. Universality says, I am not the only one. When I'm worried about a talk that I'm giving, 
and I'm nervous about it, I can say, well, I'm probably not the first one who's been nervous before speaking to a crowd. And there are other people in, probably in this greater Vancouver that are getting up in front of a crowd this morning that are also apprehensive about how it will go. I can join them in the desire to do well and in that fear that we all feel that we are not enough. And I'm grateful to those other people that are presenting this morning and are a little nervous that they can inspire me with their courage and I can pray for us all. So back to my latte story that I started with. Being self-compassionate meant digging deep inside of myself and admitting something vulnerable to myself first and then to my husband, Jim. I told him that my life had taught me that it is mean and selfish to let somebody else do something kind for me. I told him that I was worried that if I let him fuss for me, that he would end up loving me less because it would burn him out. And Jim told me gently that if he offered, it was actually because it was something that he wanted to do. And if he was offering and I would decline it, um, if I didn't want one, that was one thing. But if I just didn't let him be kind to me, that I was, wasn't actually being fair to him and I was cheating him of the opportunity for Jim to be Jim. I wasn't letting him be him. Sometimes when people hear me talking about myself, and this would be one story, people think self-compassion is about lattes and bubble baths and candles, and that's just a very small sliver of self-compassion. People worry about it being selfish and putting yourself first in a way that disregards others. But actually, self-compassion is a tough thing. Self-compassion is getting honest with yourself, loving the less lovable parts so as to heal them and to acknowledge them and work with them so that they don't hijack you when you're not looking and end up hurting other people. It's taking responsibility and being aware of your inner world in a way that has you be equipped so you can authentically and effectively engage with others. One evening, my son Carter, when he was in high school, he said to me, he's making his lunch for the next day, he said, this isn't our usual rye bread. I'm like, nope, I got it at the only store that I had time to get to, I said. And he's like, this bread is too small. And indeed, it is a lot smaller. Yep, I said, it's different. And he says, I'm going to have to make five sandwiches instead of two. That's a lot of spreading, he goes. Through gritted teeth, I say, okay. And then he says, the bread to crust ratio will be all wrong. And I lost it. I went upstairs to the kitchen and I began telling him how very unreasonable he was. I told him that he was being ungrateful. I may or may not have referenced starving children who would be grateful to have this bread, even though the ratio was all wrong. I yelled in ways that do not fit with my values. It was not cool. And I watched myself go off on this kid. At some point I sent him up to, up to bed because I knew that the vitriol I was spewing towards him was uncontrollable but also not fair. And so he left so the damage control could start happening, that I wouldn't incur any further damage, but I knew that the last image he had before he went to bed that night was watching this raving lunatic of a mom yelling at him, and I didn't like that feeling. So I went back downstairs to chill, quite literally, because I was feeling pretty hot about the whole thing. And I thought about it. And I wondered why it was that I went bonkers in a way that was just so mean and so in violation of who I want to be as a mom and as a person. And I realized it had to do with my identity. Over the next 18 hours or so, I realized 
I, so it took me about a day, almost till the next day, I realized that I had worked all day to match my behavior with what I thought would be a good mom. So I had done a lecture in the morning, I had seen clients in the afternoon, I had worked really hard to provide with my family. I had dashed out in between to get this bread, I hadn't had supper because I'd gone to watch a playoff game for my kid, I had driven in home with him chirping about the refs all the way, even though they were not the better team and they should have lost, and I didn't tell him that in his, you know, I was being a really good mom, and so when this kid yelled at me, I felt like he was challenging my ability to be a mom. And actually, I felt like he was yelling at me, but he wasn't even. I just, it felt like that. So on my anger, anger iceberg, I could see that it was shame, that I was feeling like I wasn't a good enough mom. There was fatigue. I was tired. It had been a 14-hour day. And there was a feeling of injustice, too. How come he didn't look past the bread size to see that I'd actually provided him bread? So, get this, I yelled at my kid because he was making me feel like I wasn't a good mom. How much sense does that make, to have been a mean mom because I didn't want to be a bad mom? Crazy. We don't always make sense, do we? So after I got curious and dug into that story that I was telling myself, I could understand it. I went to him the next day and I told him I yelled at him because I felt like he was telling me I was a bad mom. And he goes, mom, it's about the bread. I'm like, yeah, I know that now. So get to know yourself. Be brave in loving yourself like you love your neighbor. It will give you strength and courage to be kinder and gentler with yourself, and it will let you become closer with others. When you know that you are exactly who God made you to be, you are ready to be brave in this world in all sorts of ways that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Loving yourself for who you are prepares you to love others for who they are. It prepares you for love and relationships in the world. My favorite line of reading this summer is from Anthony DeMello, and I'm gonna invite you to hold on to it today front of mind, and it says this, behold the one beholding you and smiling. Let's pray. God, I wanna thank you for these students, for their dedication to their studies, for their developing friendships here, for the ways that they long to learn and develop who they are in order to serve this kingdom. I want to pray that you'll be with them, remind them that you are smiling at them throughout this day, and may that smile that they can picture you having on them impact how they relate to themselves in kinder and gentler ways. May, may, may that make a difference to themselves, change who they are, and that way also then change the world. Thank you for your love. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.